Hi, welcome to the Neshamas podcast. We at Neshamas are on a mission to promote mental and emotional health within our community. Among the many ways we do this is by empowerment through education. This podcast is where we get to listen to personal experiences of those who have been affected by mental illness, the pain, the struggle to get better, and today, by the grace of God, have emerged with a message of hope and healing. My name is Moshe Khanen. I am a grateful addict in recovery, and I am a certified life and addiction recovery coach. I'm here to encourage vulnerability and allow for hope to emerge from the internal journeys we share. Please join me, hear the stories of these heroes, and know that you are not alone. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Neshamas Podcast. Today, we are honored to be having a conversation with Elka Kubakob. She currently lives and grew up in Chicago and is married with a daughter, new daughter, six months old, Baruch Hashem. She currently teaches yoga and has earned a bachelor's in psychology and before Giving birth, she actually was a assistant facilitator for a group psychotherapy. And it was inpatient? Residential. Or residential. Yeah. She's here to share her story of recovering from her eating disorder and discovering the wholeness within that became the foundation of her emotional health, which she continues to grow and gain from until today. Welcome, Alka. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're very honored, and um, Elka and I spoke a little bit a few weeks ago. Was it a few? Because it's like two weeks ago, or a week ago. A week ago, yeah. A week ago, and I was very, it was so refreshing to hear that as the basis of your recovery, finding the wholeness within, especially Mm -hmm. since something that's been a, a subject talked about recently is the idea of like, you know, Hasidus and Judaism has so much. Why are we looking for, mm-hmm. what are we looking for in psychology, you know, in secular psychology? I definitely had that question way back when. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but when you say finding the whole within, that is like, that is aligned with everything that Hasidus represents, you know, the idea of a pintalid, mm-hmm. you know, within me, there's a part of me that is always whole, no matter what. So, yeah. Yeah, can you share with us a little bit, like a landscape of what it was like when you were growing up? When I was growing up? Yeah, so I grew up in Chicago, went to a very small school that was just getting started. So we were a pretty wild bunch of kids. Yeah, they were just starting to build a school, get our teachers, so... I had my few friends that I was with for basically my whole childhood who I'm still in touch with today. And what else about childhood? I think I can ask about, is there any, well, I guess two things. Number one is growing up, did you hear any conversation about eating disorder and mental health? That would be one question. Okay. Yeah. Mental health, definitely. I've like come in close contact with people struggling with their mental health in the past. So it's definitely something that I was aware of and had seen and heard of. Mm -hmm. Eating disorder is not 
not really. I didn't know what I was going through when I started experiencing it. Is there anything that you can point to that you think may have been the beginning, like the trigger? So I would think of like the real start as the year that I was in Israel in seminary, just new setting, like big group, which I wasn't used to. I felt less needed there also. In my high school, it was a small school and I was really tutoring a lot. And so I definitely had my place there and I felt like that kept me stable and healthy. Mm -hmm. But looking back, I do think that it actually started earlier. Now that I can see how like food restriction and dieting played into it, that was really like started probably 11th or 12th grade. Mm -hmm. And the triggers or where that started could have been pretty far back. Because I definitely, I was always a small kid and I definitely had this, like, like if I gain weight, I'm going to lose it, no question about it. So, yeah, in 11th or 12th grade, that was definitely when I started, like, eating less, trying to lose weight. And I didn't see how that played into it at the time. But looking back, I do believe that that's when it really started. Can you now describe to us what your self-image was back then? Like, what did you think of yourself? What type of girl are you? I was very, very quiet. I think, I think anybody, if you would ask anyone in my school, like to describe me, the two words they would probably say, or I've had heard people say were smart and quiet. So yeah, I was very quiet. I was also kind of artistic. I've always liked art stuff. But also I was, my whole family was teachers in my school. So that was like part of the, part of who I was or who people saw me as. Yeah, the like the way that that had played into the weight thing, I think because I was so quiet, there was like, I definitely remember having this feeling like, like noticing the kids in camp who were left out or like who were considered like the not with it kids. And being like, I can easily be one of them, but I wasn't. And I was like, I think that really has to do with nothing more than how I look. Which was like, yeah. Did you feel like you you related to them? So you mean you could be part of them? I felt like I related to them and I felt like I could easily have been seen as one of them. But people did make more of an effort to reach out to me or were more interested in becoming friends because of like pretty superficial image stuff. And that was because I was so quiet. I didn't feel like there was a lot of me that people saw besides. It seems like there was a lot of you that, yeah, that people weren't seeing. There was a lot going on inside. Yeah. And when you think of that, like that moment where you're looking at somebody and you say that I can easily be one of them, do you see yourself as somebody now as like so emotionally aware and they call it eq right emotionally intelligent you see that what do you mean by that i'm not sure though i'm not sure how how old do you see it were you when at that time yeah i would say 13 14 got it would you see do you see that the idea of you being sensitive to what they're going through and understanding that you can easily be one of them as being something that's a little bit emotionally advanced in regards to your intelligence. 
about emotions. I guess so. I didn't think of that, but yeah. Emotionally sensitive. Yeah. I heard Chase Tao talk about this around. It's funny. I, I quoted him last, last time we recorded the idea of a canary in a coal mine. It's this concept that they, when they do coal mining, they take a canary bird and they let it go into the coal mine. If it comes back, they know that it's clear of, of any uh, toxic fumes. Oh, interesting. Uh, because it's so sensitive. Right? Mm-hmm. So there are certain people among us that are super sensitive. Yeah. He was referring to addicts when he quoted that idea. <clears throat> but, but I see it a lot with people who struggle with mental mm-hmm. health. We're just super, super sensitive. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. I feel like that's also a respectful way of looking at it mm-hmm. because it's not like, oh, you're crazy. It's just there are lots of things happening in life and you're very affected by them. What were the earliest behaviors that you remember were a, were a symptom of, of the eating disorder? Mm-hmm. So I'll say two things for that. Like when I started seeing it as a problem and when it actually started. Mm -hmm. So the first time I remember acknowledging I had a problem with food was I actually have it in my journals now because I like just write pages and dump out whatever stuff. So that was when I was in Israel and I was having these like crazy binge eating issues and just was like really, really trying not to and just getting back to my dorm at night and like taking whatever food I could find, eating like a box of sugar cookies that is what they keep in Jerusalem dorms. And yeah, after I'm not like I have in my journals exactly when that recognition hit, but it was after a lot of times of just having like this uncontrollable eating and then at a certain point there came to this recognition like yeah this isn't something I control can control there's really something wrong here what was the build-up to the binge so okay so in the morning time in general like my mood was pretty high I was like really interested in learning I was very very involved in the classes And then there was a three-hour break during the day where I'd often go, like, walk to the hotel a lot of times myself. I was kind of a loner. And then it's hard to tell, like, exactly why it was that way. But sometime, like, dinner time to nighttime, my mood would, like, really drop. And there would be just this feeling of, like, this really deep emptiness. Like, there's something really missing. And also an exhaustion and couldn't think clearly. And then I'd get back to my dorm and just felt like I had to eat like without stop. Was there any type of like eating schedule? Was there like, did you have like any routine around all this? Yes. Yeah. So the eating part. Yeah. Okay. So in general, I think this can also like also played into it in some way is that in seminaries there is an eating schedule and there's not really food around besides that so now that I recognize the role that restrictiveness plays in the binge eating like that also creates a a feeling of scarcity or like there's there's not enough but 
Yeah. So in general, I was like super health conscious. So in the morning I would have a bowl of cereal and then lunchtime, like I didn't usually eat whatever they had. I'd have like a bowl of oatmeal. And then dinner was when like I would, yeah, just this like bottomless hunger would open up. And so, yeah, I'd eat a lot by dinner usually. And then get back to my dorm after night class. And it wasn't every single night, but a lot of nights, that's when I just would like really like look for any food I could find. When you say health conscious, was that, did anything else involved? Because you said now you do yoga. Yeah. So was there any like other health practices that you had then? Um, yes, I would exercise also. I was into exercise dance. That actually was really good for my mood. That was like the time when I felt most normal. And sometimes I would try to do that like when I was having urges or just feeling crazy. And like after pretty intense exercise, I would usually feel better. What What did you mean when you said feeling crazy? Just like, yeah, that emptiness and fogginess and just not in control of myself. Did you ever recognize that is not okay? That's a good question. I honestly like, yeah, when I look back at my journals now, I was like, since I'm writing my own blog now, I was looking back at my experiences to try and capture them. And I'm like for other people. And I'm like, I don't know if anyone can relate to this because the way I didn't describe it as like, this is what I'm feeling. I described it more as like, this is the human condition. And I felt like there was just this like, deep spiritual void or like, yeah, like it was just something that's really at the core of everyone. And I was experiencing it at that point in time. Because you're supposed spiritually in touch, in tune. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was in Israel and studying right. <laughs> and in seminary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if that ties into your story. So, and based on that, wonder i'm going to ask you like what was your relationship to spirituality before you came to israel and mm -hmm. how that played out and changed yeah. yeah i was definitely i liked anything spiritual and was i would say pretty spiritually in touch and definitely like wanted to follow anything spiritual when i came to israel i was really excited about being in the land and yeah, I was like, I was really involved in the classes, learning whatever I could. My two like main areas of questioning there were free will mm. a lot because of what I was experiencing. And I was like, as I said before, everything I was experiencing was a, a reflection of the human species at large. So I was like, if I can be this helpless, then nobody really has control over what they're doing. They just happen to be in circumstances that allow it. Mm, that's so interesting. Looking at yeah. yourself as the insight, like the, the place to look into to see what's going on in the entire world. Yeah. I also had seen like mental illness before in the past. So so there was definitely like a sense of anyone can become anything just mm -hmm. depending on what happens to them. To them. That's right. Yeah. So, so the first question was free will. Does it exist? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
And then the second question was related to Bittel or can we really do anything that's not about ourselves in some way? Mm. And I think that was also related to the place I was at in seminary where I wasn't at a place where there was, where I was really needed. So there was this feeling of just being stuck inside myself and I can't reach past that. And whatever I'm doing is in some way feeding into that. Wow. Okay. So there's like a bunch of stuff you just said. So yeah. first of all, in case anybody's listening and doesn't know what the word bitil means, it's, mm-hmm. there is actually, I haven't found any single English word that can describe it, but it's really a pursuit of, of being dissolved in the presence of God. But the idea is, is that there's, I have an ego and spirituality and being spiritual means that I want to be free from that ego so that I can fully be given over to a higher source. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you were in Israel, you saw yourself feeding into what part? All of the behaviors feeding into what? Well, yeah, feeding into my self-concept or this need to validate myself or make myself feel okay in some way. So was there like a a back and forth for you? Like on one hand, I want to not be, and the other hand, like I'm disappearing. Explain what you mean by that. On one hand, you're showing up to Israel and you have this pursuit of Bittel, right? But on the other hand, you're not needed and you're like all of a sudden feeling empty. Yeah. So I think the not needed is what actually led to that question of can I really devote myself to something that's not me because I didn't really have any opportunity to do that. Hmm. So what were things that you tried? to devote yourself to? That's a good question. Hmm. I would, like, anytime they had opportunity to volunteer for anything, I would do it. But, yeah, there wasn't, like, I was definitely investing myself in my learning, but I felt like that was all about me. So, yeah, I didn't really have that much to devote myself to, which played into that feeling of just I'm stuck inside myself and I can't do mm. anything outside me. It'll be that those walks to the hotel by yourself be that mm-hmm. that very pursuit. Let me go and give myself over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trying to just forget myself for a bit or mm-hmm. get lost in something bigger. Yeah. When you look back at that, what do you like what do you feel? What do you think? What do you observe? When I look back at that question. Or or look back at yourself doing all those. At myself. A lot of, like in some ways I feel detached from it. Mm -hmm. Like when I look back at my story, I'm like, wow, that was me. Like what, (laughs) what happened? But there's like when I do reconnect to it and get back into that space, there's like, and there's a part of me that misses part of that, just that intensity. And there was like, or there was a real depth there and a real like, wanting to learn in a deep and very alive way and I miss that like really spiritually in touch feeling and at the same time there's also just like yeah that emptiness I yeah just there's like a kind of sadness there or hard to 
like put a name to it mm-hmm. but just that like empty and very alone feeling yeah was there anybody who you were in touch with a mashpia teacher anybody's spiritual guide a mentor did you have anybody yeah well yeah so the closest to that i would say was met was rabbi kaufman i don't know if you know him but he's a teacher at my note who also taught in my seminary and i would i would stay after class and just like ask a ton of questions i never spoke about myself mm, um, always talking about ideas yeah and he's not mm. someone who you would talk about yourself too <laughs> but yeah he like he definitely realized that something was up mm-hmm. but yeah he was the one who i would come to with all my questions also, the year after my year in Jerusalem, I was in spot as a shlucha working at Makonalta. Mm. And I like I maintained email contact with him. So I would ask him my questions and he would send me sources to look at and then I would learn them. So I would say that was like probably the closest to a spiritual mentor that I had. I had a mashpil who I spoke to like once in a while, but there wasn't like... I wasn't really in touch with her much. So, yeah, that was like really where I was turning to for some kind of guidance or direction. Mm -hmm. And amongst that, it was just ideas. You weren't necessarily talking about yourself or what your own personal struggles were. Right. Yeah, I never spoke about myself. Mm -hmm. So you maintained that protective, those protective. Yeah. Yeah, looking back, I wonder who I would have spoken to if I was actually honest what was going on. Yeah. And Mahonalta, I think they probably would have had more, like, help available or would have directed me to a therapist. But I didn't, yeah, I didn't talk to anyone about it. Mm-hmm. Was it the same or did it change? Or did your habits change, your eating habits change over throughout the years, those two years? For a period, yeah. So when I first got back to Mahonalata, I like for a while I didn't have any, like I didn't fall back into my eating disorder stuff. Also, like there wasn't really food around, so it was like hard to find, and I was in a new environment. I mean, wasn't food meaning there were three meals and right? Yeah, there's like dorms don't have snacks in them really, and. So, and then I'm not sure exactly when I started drifting back into it, but also that year in Mahonalta, there was a period of like about a month where maybe that was also toward the beginning. I'm not sure where I actually felt really good. Like I did not have any of my eating disorder stuff. I was eating like really healthy and normal. I felt good. And I was at that time, actually, I was like really working on being around people more so I wasn't, I was a shlucha there. So I was supposed to be like, supposed to be in a giving role more and helping create the environment there. And we had a smaller group in the beginning when we started out. And there was a time when the rabbi like called us and we were a group of five shluchas and he's like, yeah, like the group right now, it was a, like a few older girls and people who also like kept a lot to themselves. And he's like, yeah, we want to create more of an environment where people are actually like doing things with each other or hanging out. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm part of that problem. <laughs> so, and also something. You thought that or you spoke that? I think I said that. 
<laughs> so that was part of I was like, yeah, I I need to like be engaging with people more. And that was actually one of the like bigger larger themes of my year in Mokonalto was like really connecting to people and making that a priority and how the year before I was really alone a lot and felt okay with that. And that year I was just realizing like how much we just need other people. Mm-hmm. And not only to be giving, but also to be receiving in some way for there to be two-way relationships and to allow that. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so anyway, where I was getting with this. So I had a period, there was another girl who I was friends with, one of the Mokonalta girls. And she was also like, she would keep to herself a lot. She had like a his- traumatic history and was very, very sensitive and just was like didn't want to be around people much because she got hurt very very quickly so we both we started we called it the socialness campaign (laughs) and we were like really making an effort to spend time around people and I was like writing down like positive interactions I had with people at the time but that actually made a big difference and that I had a period of probably close to a month where I was like really very happy and not having any eating disorder stuff which is interesting yeah and then i didn't feel like that again for a long time after that questions coming up so as i ask this i'm just coming from you described the idea of waking up and having a breakfast a a small breakfast like a bowl small bowl for lunch and Mm -hmm. then in the evening you call it like a bottomless pit of like needing to fill up. Yeah. Is that, is that how your eating disorder manifested in its entirety? Did it change? Did it get more intense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's a good question. Hmm. I would say that was the usual pattern, but there were definitely times when firstly, like the binge from the night would sometimes carry into the next day. I had a period where I was fasting like the day after there was also like a lot of times where I just feel that like just bad feeling waking up of like, Oh shoot that again. And also during when there were breaks, like vacation days or days off from the regular routine schedule, I would like collapse completely. Like if there was no structure or nothing distracting me, like I could have like the whole day binging and, just feeling horrible but I think the nighttime pattern stuck for a a long time like throughout the whole eating disorder what did how did you create like guidelines around your fasting how did I create guidelines around my fasting I'm just assuming that there are these guidelines like because when you're fasting I'm, I'm starting the fast at this time I'm going to end it at this time. This is what I'm allowed to do. This is what I'm not allowed to do. I'm just imagining mm. that that's what happens. I'm just, that's why I'm asking that question that way. Yeah. It's an assumption. I don't know that there were guidelines. And like in a way, even though the fasting was more intentional, it was the same. I can't think of the right word, but like instinctive or automatic as the binge eating was in the sense that it was it was just like what I felt I had to do the next day. So there wasn't like I 
I don't know if I even did I make a decision like oh today I'm not eating at all probably at some point I'm not sure when it ended I think at the night nighttime maybe I would eat a little bit but yeah I'm not sure that there were guidelines though there probably was some kind of pattern what were the main indicators that you knew that you were or at least that you now know that you were that you had an eating disorder definitely the binge eating and not feeling in control of that and trying to stop over and over again I didn't I didn't actually call it an eating disorder probably till I got back from Israel and started somewhere I found it like on the internet and I, I was like yeah that's that's what's going on here but yeah the binge yeah. eating the restriction I didn't see as a problem until the binge eating stuff came up would you say that the intensity is what is the the indicator yes the intensity and the out of controlness of it and yeah also like the amounts that i ate were really not regular like normal people or i want i don't want to say normal people because no one's normal but but yeah you wouldn't eat that much it like it was really at a point where i just be like when will i feel sick enough to stop so there was oh so the amount you're you're judging the amount based on how sick you felt yeah and that was just like what would finally let me stop because i didn't feel like i could stop so there was that there was also the fact that it's like even hard to talk about just because it's embarrassing but yeah there was even like the out of controlness of it and the fact that I would like eat stuff that I never would have thought of how of thought of and especially since I was in a dorm where there wasn't food like I was really just like looking around where like old stuff in the freezer that I didn't think anyone was having or like yeah one of my I would say one of my worst experiences there were a few of them was like I was looking in the freezer for something and like found some old bread that I had and then the next morning I found a note on the freezer like I hate when people take my food if you took it like please return I felt like well I I was like what is wrong with me I felt really really bad and I bought like I bought her a bag of bread and was like sorry I didn't realize it was yours and she was like oh it's fine you could like don't worry about it but yeah so there was that out of controlness and that feeling like I would do anything to get food which I like in my regular self that wasn't normal for me at all like I was like really very honest and honest person to the point where like when people would be like who took my food before that I would have been like no one took it you probably misplaced it like why would anyone do that so yeah just finding myself doing stuff that were not like me at all and that I didn't have any control over it Mm -hmm. that was definitely an indication that something was wrong I guess the intensity it almost sounds like just an unhealthy relationship with the entire concept of food yes yeah yeah, and the spirituality actually played into that. How was that? Because there was a part of me that was like, I don't want to be a physical person and have all these physical needs. And there was definitely this rejection of my physical self. Wow. Which made the binge eating feel worse and also played into it because I was rejecting that part of myself. It just came back in an uncontrollable way. Right. 
So you have one part of you that just wants to leave your body. Yeah. And another one is that is so intense, like so hungry to stay mm-hmm. back here. Yeah. Yeah. I could have sworn I heard that concept before in like Hasidus, like Ratsa and Shov, like, mm-hmm. you know, Aaron's two sons. Oh, that's interesting. In like this, right? Yeah, I hadn't thought of that like that before, but yeah, that makes sense. Because it's intense. How do you reconcile? Like, how do you know? Because right now, as I speak to you, I try to be as sensitive as possible to the whole diet culture, mm-hmm. like all that stuff to be like super sensitive to that. It's like, I, I just l- literally don't know enough about yeah. it to like say, okay, what are things that are healthy to talk about and try to, yeah, and be sensitive mm-hmm. to the people who are listening. Like, how can you, like, I guess, I guess that's the way to see it. Like, it's just an unhealthy relationship with food. Like a healthy relationship mm-hmm. with food would be, okay, I'm eating and that's just okay because right. I'm hungry. Right. Because I'm hungry or even I can enjoy food and that's fine too. Can you speak a little bit about that, about a healthy relationship with food would be mm-hmm. in which there could be a certain way that a person wants to have, like, like what would be a healthy relationship with food? Mm-hmm. I know that's a very general question, but yeah. I think in this context, it's worth mentioning. Mm-hmm. Or you can just yeah. say, what is it today for you? Right. Yeah, that's changed for me over time. At this point, a healthy relationship with food is just like, I don't think all that much about it. Mm. Like it's, yeah, I eat basically whatever I want, whenever I want. I do tend like, I don't, I did at a certain point make a conscious decision, like not to eat like very, very processed sugar stuff, which I keep to like to some degree today, but I don't have that. I would say like the strongest thing as far as a healthy relationship with food is that it's not so much about what you eat, but that there is, it's not based on fear. So what I mean by that is that there was a certain point where I wasn't eating sugar, flour, dairy, dairy, which to some degree I don't today, but there was this fear around it of like, if I do, my mind will just shut down because I was having a lot of brain fog and fatigue. So that is, there's a fear around food. Like if I have this, something bad is going to happen which, yeah, that's fear-based. And whether that bad thing that's going to happen has to do with your health or your weight or whatever, there's, yeah. So, yeah, like the counter to that is just that food is food. There's nothing to be afraid of. I can eat when I want and I'll be fine. I'll still be beautiful and a worthwhile person regardless of what I eat. And, yeah, for me at different points in time that looked different, Because when I was actively recovering from my eating disorder, there was a certain point where I was following a very, very structured meal plan. And I needed that at that point because I didn't really have hunger and fullness cues. So there were times when I just would never feel full. So having a set like this is what time I'm and how much I'm eating really helped because there were clear guidelines that I could follow when my body wasn't really letting me know what to do. It seems like at the core of this behavior is the loss of cues that happen mm-hmm. in your body that let you know, hey, we're hungry, let's eat. Mm-hmm. Or or we're eating, you know, we've eaten enough. That's it. Let's stop. It seems like that part of of you had 
was like neglected, you know? Oh, nobody's mm-hmm. listening to me. So yes, I'm just not going to show up anymore. I'm not going to say anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that was how the restriction in high school played into my eating disorder. Because in 11th, 12th grade, that was when I started really cutting back at what I was eating. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what I was eating at the time, but I was definitely hungry a lot. And that was really what led into the urges to binge eat because my body is like, I'm not getting enough food. So when there is food, it's like, I need to get as much as I can so that I'll I'll be okay when there's not any left. So it seems like there were cues though in that case, but they weren't mm-hmm. happening naturally. They were happening only based on what's happening outside as opposed to what's happening inside. Meaning if there's mm-hmm. food available, now I'm going to eat a lot as something like this outside as opposed mm-hmm. to every time I'm hungry, I just eat. Yes. Yeah. The when there's food available in some way was determined by something internal, but that internal thing was not hunger. That internal thing was just when the like when my restrictiveness wasn't up or when I wasn't on guard or couldn't be in control anymore. So yeah, my body's just like, I need to get as much food as possible to prepare for when I'm not right. getting enough. Wow, it almost seems like you starred yourself to the point of trauma, meaning like yeah, literally, like fight, fight, you know, or f- freeze, right? So at that point, it's like there's no food, and now I have to save because there's hunger, and you know, I'm just imagining like olden day, right? Yeah, somebody's in a town, and and there's uh there's a hunger. They they've actually done hunger studies that, which I've read about like when I was discovering the role that restriction plays in binge eating, but they did a study in, it's called the Minnesota something trial where they took a group of people and it was during the war. So they, this was a way I believe of avoiding the draft. So they had them eat, not really to the point of like dangerously starving, but cut their calories to significantly lower amounts And in the period after, they found that they had a lot of the bulimia binge eating disorder symptoms where they couldn't control their eating. There were also mood stuff associated with it. So, yeah, I definitely experienced that, even though I wasn't at any point medically underweight or dangerously underweight, but just the after effects of not eating enough Mm or that my body was, my hunger signals were definitely not functioning normally. Got it. Yeah. Now I'm understanding that there are levels, right? Mm-hmm. So there's like a general hunger. Okay, I'm I'm a bit hungry, mm-hmm. and then there comes a certain point where it's it's reached past a certain line, mm-hmm. and now there's like a new, almost like I don't know. I always think of like different parts, right? That's the way I think. Mm-hmm. There's there's one part didn't do his job well, so now the manager is showing up and he's going to do things a lot more intensely. Interesting. And yeah. And he's going to take over here. Step aside. Let me take over. I'm going to make sure that we, so that, you know, things will be stable for the next little while. So can you bring us back to when you were in Israel? And uh, did you ever get answers to those questions? About, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Let me think. So the free will one, definitely. I was, I'm trying to think of specific places, but I've de- I definitely learned about how free will comes from this part of you that it's not your mind and it's not your emotions because both of those are influenced by outside things, but there's something that really runs below your thoughts and feelings and external circumstances that what we would call the Atsam Hanafesh or the the essential essential self that's not controlled in any way by those things. And I remember having this epiphany when I was, I had this little balcony outside my dorm room that you had to climb through the window to get to. So it was like my, the window of my room, luckily. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I would go out there all the time. And it was after a class I had gone to. And I remember having this realization that we have all these questions about there's like from a religious standpoint, there's like the Hashgacha Pratis or God directing versus what's happening from us. Or you can even say it from a more just like regular everyday person perspective of there's just like all these external things are happening and guiding me in a certain way. What choices am I actually making? And or what if I God's running was, the world. Yeah. If God's running the world, then what? What does it make right. a difference what I think, what I do? Yeah. Yeah. So what I realized actually was that when you're talking about free will and when you're making choices, the place in you it's coming from is a part of God mm-hmm. because there's nothing else in you that can make free choices. Everything else is controlled by something outside it. Mm-hmm. So the deepest place anything you're ever choosing to do is really coming from this part of you that's whole and that's choosing your life path because it's a part of your purpose and a part of what God wants to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's in case this is part of your thought and you just didn't express it Mm -hmm. is that it is the purest form of God within me. Yeah. And that is why, because God is the only independent entity, Mm -hmm. only the God within me has the capacity of having independence. So the God within Mm -hmm. me is what, Gives me the freedom of choice. Yeah. Yeah. And at a deeper level also, even the negative choices that we make are really a part of that. And let's say my whole eating disorder stuff and all of those crazy times, like all of those were also being directed by that part of me Mm -hmm. because that that's a part of what I'm supposed to be doing in the world and a part of my life journey. Do you have any insight as to, oh my God. Okay. I'm going to say this, but I don't mean any disrespect to where anybody's holding in their journey. Mm -hmm. But can, can you see how, how do you see today or do you see in any way how that needed to happen? Meaning Mm -hmm. it makes sense now. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely what led me to get, into psychology was definitely always something I was interested in, but there, like I had a lot to catch up on. There were a lot of things that would have held me back. And at a certain point, when I started to find answers to my eating disorder after struggling for a long time, there was definitely a strong feeling of, I need to share this. I need to, like my experiences are for a reason and I need to do something with them. Mm -hmm. So that's a story that's still in progress, but it's definitely directed the course of my life since then. And that's what led me to study psychology. And I'm working on 
creating a program based on my own experiences that I can use to help other people. So it's definitely guided where I'm at right now. Assuming that today you feel you find a lot of meaning and fulfillment in the work you're doing. Yeah. 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 It's also influenced my work and not related to eating disorders, but the group therapy thing, just this, it's definitely given me a belief that even things that seem impossible can change. And that in mental health in particular, there are a lot of questions that don't have answers, at least in this point in time. And a lot of people who are just chronically struggling and yeah, there's not easy answers, but it's definitely given me a belief that there's always something there and things that seem impossible can become possible. Does that come from the Hasidic concept of Etzimanashash? A combination of the Hasidic concept and my own experiences. Because mm-hmm. before it was a concept, I definitely be- I believed in it, but I've like I didn't experience it in myself. So it was a constant back and forth of like, I know this is true, but I'm not seeing it. And can it really be applied? But now that like once I've, I had experienced it in myself, there was like more of a reality to it. Mm-hmm. So here's my million-dollar question. Yeah. Okay. That's the million-dollar question. <laughs> what did you experiencing it? Mm-hmm. Can you describe that in any way? Yeah. Or as, as much as you can possibly willing okay. to share? Yeah. That, that's a good question. Bring it to life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So when I would say my recovery started after I had found a book called Brain Over binge, which was a woman who herself had struggled with bulimia for six years and she had gotten past it through realizing that she could watch her experiences as an observer, as an outsider. And I started taking, yeah, yeah. it's a little bit more than objectively because when we say objectively, a lot of times it sounds more of like a rational or analytical process at least that's how I think of it like science is objectively observing things from the outside but what that experience actually was like for me when I started doing it was I I would have these urges to binge and I'd at first go to a quiet place and just sit there with those feelings and watch them without moving so I'd start to notice what they actually feel like so I'd be sitting there and I'd have this feeling, oh, there's this tension in my chest and I just stay with it and let it be there. And then there's this emptiness in my stomach, a constricting in my throat. And then I'd also take the same thing with my thoughts. I'd start, I'd watch them as if there's something outside of me. So I'd have this thought, oh, this is not going to work. I've tried this a million times before. You know, you'll give in or I'd start like already having like my mind would start like planning to go binge and I just watched that and there was I definitely felt a lot of agitation or it wasn't comfortable at all is that are you making it sound soft or was it like really intense it was intense (laughs) yeah yeah I guess yeah I'm since I'm like describing it from the past it definitely gets toned down a little bit but it's, I would say it's probably one of the hardest things I've done and I've done some hard things. So I, yeah, I'd sit with those feelings sometimes for half hour and at a certain point, 
I might still feel those things, but there was a sense of there's there's a me underneath them and I can I can hold them. So that agitation and that restlessness and that need to escape these feelings was gone, even though the feelings might still be there. Can you explain that? I didn't understand. Yeah. Yeah. So I might still, like, if I were to objectively, as you said, describe what an urge to binge feels like, I would say there's tension in my chest and emptiness in my stomach, constriction in my throat. There are thoughts. I thoughts. I'm going to give in. I can't control this. I've done this a million times before. I need to get rid of these feelings. So those sensations and thoughts might still be there after I sit with them for half hour. But I didn't need I didn't feel like I needed to binge even though they were there because there was a me that was holding all of those all of those things and they were just thoughts and sensations. They were fine. I could I could handle them. I could stay with them. It's almost like I started to get comfortable with them being there. Hmm. So it's like, yeah, I mean, this is a lot of the work I've I've done and I continue to do. Mm-hmm. I continue to do with others. Yeah. Is most fundamentally is that a new identity or an old identity, but is actually present. The presence mm-hmm. of a deeper identity, which is the observer, the holder, mm-hmm. the one that has choice. Yeah. Yeah, that way you don't need to get rid of these other parts of you. Right. And all of this was introduced to you from that one book? No. Um, okay. <laughs> that, was, that was the start of it. After that, I'm trying to think. Was there anything that you mm-hmm. co- you connected or correlated to in regards to your ideas that you've learned in Hasidus in the past? Yeah. Can you give me any ideas? Yeah. So the concept that there is a whole self or an essential self that's not changed, I felt like when I discovered this, I felt like, oh, this is actually something I can access in a tangible way. It's not some spiritual concept up there. It's something that I can really get in touch with. And when I do, I can use it to hold all of the other parts of me. Mm-hmm. Can you see in any way how that moment in your balcony when you had that epiphany mm-hmm. of seeing how freedom of choice and God running the world, mm-hmm. how, can you see how that, the connection between the two, how maybe one of them was the first step in order to really understand the second one? Yeah. So that night on the balcony, I would say that was actually like the first time I resisted an urge to binge. Like I got back in and I was like, I don't, I don't need to do this but it wasn't sustainable but there was mm-hmm. definitely like the spark of that or there was somewhere in me that knew that was possible and then when I started actively practicing this observing my thoughts and sensations as an outsider so at this point have you even met a mental health professional yet yes yeah okay okay so one second so I'd love <laughs> yeah. to know when did you read the book were you still in Israel did, were you back that was when I was back in Chicago okay so can you like bring us into like what happened yeah since from when yeah yeah Yeah, there was a long process after that it's not like I read the book and I was like okay I'm good I'm recovered everything is good well I was actually like that but it didn't turn out that way so yeah I read that book she also talks about the role that restriction plays in binge eating and after that 
Oh, I followed like the sources in that book to a couple of other books about similar ideas, one of them in relation to, o- to OCD, but similar process, another one connected to addictions. And they all gave pretty much different tools for doing the same thing. So there was one that was recognizing the addictive voice. So I would write out uh, like whatever my urges to binge sounded like I would write out all the thoughts that came up. And the more I got to know that voice, the more I didn't have to be controlled by it because I could just recognize Mm -hmm. when it was there and be Mm -hmm. like, okay, that's there. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I had started doing was I also at that point, actually, once I was started sitting with the urges to binge, I started to notice how much of me was hurting. Like emotionally? Yeah. Yeah. And without, I didn't, even have an explanation for it, but I feel like a lot of emotional pain without words or even knowing what it was connected with. And I still don't know what it was connected with, but I started journaling a lot also. And I still have those journals. I'd write to myself as if I was talking to a bunch of different people. So I'd give whatever the voice was a name, let's say fear, and then write whatever came up and it would jump between a bunch of different voices and I'd write them all out. So there was that. So I was doing really a lot of work on every single day. And Can you describe all the work, how much time, and what you were doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that Thank was you. one thing was the journaling probably daily. The urges to binge were still pretty frequent at that point. So I can't remember exactly how often, but yeah, I would sit with those feelings for a long time until I started to feel a sense of peace with them. I remember leaving the Shabbos meal at a certain point because I was feeling the urges to binge. I didn't feel in control of them and I didn't feel like I could get to that place while sitting at the table. So I just sat in my room for a while. And How long did the journaling take? I don't actually know. I want to guess maybe half hour. I think it depended on the time also and how much I had going on, but I would just give it as long as it took. Right. It seems like you also made like that the most important thing in your life, more important than Chavez meals, more important. Yeah. Yeah. And there were times when I tried not to or would get frustrated by it. Like, why do I need to do all of this work just to be, feel normal? And were you being guided at this time, aside for the book? You were just doing all this on your own? Yeah, I was doing all this on my own. I was. That's incredible. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'd been to a few therapists along the way, but none of them were really directive enough. There was a lot more of just like listening. It was recommended that I take medication at a certain point in time. For what diagnosis? For depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I. I did all of that work really on my own. Was there at any point that you felt like it's okay to loosen your grip on your recovery process? That is a very good question. Yes. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. It took a long time. So, oh, I was in the middle of describing like what that recovery process looked like. Mm. So it didn't end there. (laughs) Yeah. I did a whole bunch of things. I was also writing affirmations and like reading them like all day long. (laughs) Like just whenever I was walking somewhere or anything, as I, as I had mentioned before, I was like following a specific meal plan for a certain period of time. I actually did relapse 
largely because of the depression. Like I was having times where I was just like, I'm doing all this work and I'm still not feeling good. And Mm. I like the way that depression manifested for me was more of an apathy than a sadness. So at a certain point it was just like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care enough to keep working. That was actually when it was recommended that I take medication and I didn't really for practical reasons because my insurance denied the one that was prescribed. And then at that point I was like feeling a little bit better. And so I just didn't follow up, but I had a a lot of, a lot of ups and downs. So in the beginning there was, as far as eating and as far as the work I was doing, there was definitely a lot of, like you're saying, like trying to hold things in place and a lot of, like, it doesn't sound healthier. It's not an ideal way to live, but it was an important part of the process at that point. So when did that loosen? It happened gradually. So at a certain point, like, let's say as far as eating, yeah, at a certain point, the urges started to get weaker. And at that point, like I stopped planning as carefully, though I was still like, I still had some kind of structure to when I was eating, what times of day, but like I lessened that and was, yeah, so there was, as far as that, as far as the writing and journaling, I was actually, there were times when I was frustrated that I still needed it. How did you know you needed it? Because of what happened when I didn't do it. Mm. So, yeah, like I would yeah, like get back into that blocked, apathetic place, have trouble thinking clearly. Yeah, I would say like the process of loosening the grip or like not doing less of that stuff to keep myself stable happened the more stable I felt. Mm-hmm. So with eating, eating actually was probably the first thing to go or the first area where I needed less control, like the urges to binge eat. The emotional stuff were harder to get past. And I'm still working with those stuff today, but not to the same degree. Mm -hmm. I would say, yeah, one like big change in that was when I got married, like when we were dating for sure. That was actually when like the last of the eating stuff went like where I just didn't feel like I needed it anymore. Eating stuff, meaning like meal plans. And yeah. Stuff meal like plans or structure around eating. So yeah, as far as that, the emotional stuff also, I like, I don't do as much as I used to for sure and don't need to, but still ups and downs. So there are still times when I am like, I need to start meditating again or start journaling again. And there are times when I'll go for a while without it. There are two questions that are coming up for me. Okay, yeah. One is, do you feel like that part of you that gave you hunger cues or full cues, do you feel like that was like reawakened? Today, mm-hmm. do you mm-hmm. feel hunger cues? Yes, yeah. Yeah, today I feel hunger cues and I can eat based on them. And I also feel fullness cues. So, yeah, like the the entire struggle around food, I can say like with confidence that I've conquered. I don't have... Anything with it anymore. Yeah. The second question is along your therapeutic journey using secular psychology, mm-hmm. was there, did your spiritual and, and Judaism 
continue along with it? Was, yeah, that journey continue? Sadly, no. <laughs> but yeah, that that's been a struggle for me. Like, which is actually partly why I agreed to do this podcast talk because when my friend had suggested it, and at first I was like, I have. I did not have any intention of sharing my story in the Jewish community. It's a lot easier to talk about stuff with strangers than with your neighbors and best friends. So, but part of what made me realize like this would be a good thing to do is that I was noticing how these two parts of myself really grew in separate directions. So I almost like cut off the psychology stuff from my like Jewish from self, which has affected my like level of observance Mm -hmm. so yeah I do believe they can go together more but they've they've gotten cut off to a certain degree in my own life do you still associate that idea of yeah yeah so I was recently doing my graduate school applications and I didn't write about my personal story because I was advised against that because want you to be like a stable healthy person before they accept you into school (laughs) but yeah I wrote about like my my discovery or my belief from a spiritual standpoint of like the self that's always whole and how I want to go to graduate school so that I can really see how that plays out in clinical settings Mm -hmm. so yeah there is I do connect them in some way this has come up recently quite a bit so I'm just gonna ask you and that is the idea of music and song and the gunim was that ever mm-hmm. part of your journey yeah can you share that yeah music and song for sure dance in particular when i was in israel that was a big part of what helped me feel free and alive yeah i i was i would dance a lot back then just turn on music also when I was in spot that's like an amazing place for that at Ascent they would have the Saturday night dancing and Havdala so I would always go to that and yeah dance really and music really helped me break out of all of that stuff at least for a short time or while I was in it when you say that you felt alive Mm-hmm. Does it make sense to you? Is it your truth that mm-hmm. that was that part of you that was alive? That you was mean, present? You mean like the essential self? Or, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. The question is based on the quote from the Alta Rabbi, which is the words are the pen of the heart mm-hmm. and music is the pen of the soul. Yeah, music is definitely the pen of the soul. It did fe- it did feel like that. Uh, it's interesting also because there's that and there's also the fact that dance is like a f- physical movement. So yeah. I think that also put me in touch with more of my physical self, which mm. I had been shutting down and running away from. Right. It also seems like you're using your physical body as for a spiritual cause, mm-hmm. you know, where they can dance together. <laughs> right. Yeah. There is a connection between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Also, another thing that just came to mind was my father had actually told me this, but I'm sure 
I know it comes from Chassidus. I think it was maybe the free of the Greva that said this, that when it says in Pirkei Avis that we should make for ourselves a Rav, say Lecharav, mm-hmm. which the literal translations I think is like, acquire yourself a friend. Mm-hmm. But the word kne is also can mean a pen. And a pen, a pen is your friend. Oh. Yeah, I've heard and that. We talked about all your journaling. Yeah, a pen is definitely my friend. <laughs> it's beautiful. I feel like there's you've you've really delivered a very powerful message and I really appreciate it. I wonder if there's anything else you feel like uh you'd like to share while we're recording. Any message for somebody who's in seminary or one of the mm-hmm. mad, madrichas or any yeah. message for somebody who's just beginning, any, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is just keep trying because, like, I hope my story resonates with some people and you can take something from it. Sometimes your journey might look different than anything you've seen before. and. You just, like, sometimes you won't have the answer right away, but you just have to keep keep at it and you'll, you'll find something. You'll find someone who has experienced a similar thing. Yeah, you'll find someone who has experienced a similar thing. And you'll that's find what, ha- what works for that you. That was your experience. Yeah, that's what happened for me. Yeah, and it, it really it took a long time and it was a lot of hard work. Another thing is that I did do a lot of it on my own but you don't have to (laughs) like it I think actually at a certain point going back to your question of like when like I was able to loosen my grip a little bit part of that happened with sharing it and speaking to people about it where there was a release of shame Mm. there what settings were that okay so that I had spoken to a couple therapists over the years the specific incident I remember was actually with someone in Crown Heights who does like some energy healing stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was having like, even though I wasn't actively engaged in my eating disorder anymore at that point, I was having like some flashbacks or like that same feeling of shame or just like I wasn't fully in control. And I had spoken to her to her about it and specifically gone back to those incidences of like where I had taken food that wasn't mine. And, Mm. and she was like, she was just like really easy about it. I want to say, or like, just like, yeah, whatever my kids steal each other's food all the time. Like, and it like just that being able to talk about it in a, in a lighter way took away a lot of the shame associated with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely talking about it is helpful. And at the same time, like, if it takes time to find a therapist that works for you, don't make your ther- don't make your work dependent on that. There's always like what to there's always what to do at any point in time to feel better. Any resources that you'd recommend a listener, a book, a podcast, uh, mm-hmm. anything? Yeah. Yeah, let me think. Stuff that I've used. Mm-hmm. So, okay, Brain Over Binge by Katherine Hansen is a good book. That was the one that first introduced me to the, firstly, the role that restriction plays in binge eating and also the way of approaching those urges to binge. Another thing that I had used a lot is John Combat Zinn, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which is 
like more systematic mindfulness meditation, which is really what I would call the work I did. So body scan meditation where you're sitting with every part of your body and just noticing what's there in a non-judgmental way, watching your thoughts. So I've used that a lot. Also, The Binge Code by Ellie Kerr is a good book. And I had joined her. She has a Facebook support group, which I had joined and connected to a couple of people there. This was like my last and final time recovering. And how significant would you say that camaraderie is? That's a good question. Mm, I would say it's. It probably depends on the person to some degree. I'm kind of an an independent spirit, which like I did a lot of the work on my own, but that definitely helped with like the lingering shame. And so definitely in releasing shame, I would say it's important because anything that anything that you can't share, I feel like still weighs on you in some way or there's still a part of you that is bad enough not to say. Whereas if you can share Mm -hmm. something, it's like, okay, this part of me can be accepted. I've recently discovered, at least for myself, is that out of all the different emotional experiences, shame is the closest one to my feeling of exist my existence. Hmm. You know, there's, there's there's many different emotions. Anger, I feel like I'm not being, but shame is the one that like is like the closest to my soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. You mean you experience it most, or no? It it's. Or it's a a deeper feeling. It's the deepest feeling for me. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Like the closest to my actual existence or Mm -hmm. my identity. Yeah, of who I am as a person. But this is also a lot of the work that I've done. Yeah. Shame is a big part of mine. Yeah. Um, Do you think that differs from person to person or? I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It does seem like shame goes pretty deep. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Elka was actually here for a, a wedding and she mm-hmm. carved out the time. Yeah. On her visit to come to speak oh, with you. Can I make all. a quick plug for a project I'm working on? Yeah. Of course. Okay. Yeah. So I'm actually, I'm just recently started working on my website, which is called soulsubstance.org, which is really about like valuing and recognizing your body as the extension of your spiritual self rather mm-hmm. than the separation. And as part of that project, I'm also working on creating a group program based on my experiences using this observation and watching what's going on from an outside or observing perspective to heal. So Beautiful. So you're going to use your experience and your knowledge and your training to like Mm -hmm. guide others. Yeah, that's that's the plan. And I've actually, a lot of the materials I'm putting together now, I had started creating while I was recovering. Mm -hmm. So guided exercises that I had created when I was learning this stuff and used on myself, which I'm organizing and putting together. So I'm really excited about that. Wow. Um, That seems like it creates the completion of the circle, right? Yeah. Yeah. When we publish this podcast, is the best way to get a, for people to reach you through the website? Is there like a contact us or anything like that that people can send you messages? Yeah, I'm. I have to put that up still, but there will be. Okay. Is there any other way that people can, can email find you? Or 
Are you on social media? Facebook. Social- yeah, I am on Facebook? Facebook. They can find me on Facebook. I have to change my name. Okay. What is it? Right now it's other. Right now it's Alka Muhammad. And then you want to change it to. Uh, to Kabakab. Kabakab. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, thanks for. On behalf of all of us, listeners, yeah. Nishamas, the Jewish community. Yeah, thank you and all those who supported you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, thanks for doing this. I feel like it's really important work. And I like as I was talking about before, I feel like it is really helpful, both for the people talking and for the people listening to have a space for this within the Jewish community. So that we don't need to divide ourselves between who we are and what our recovery is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been an honor. So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening. Please share your feedback by emailing us at podcast at We hope you'll be back for the next episode of the Nashamas Podcast. This is Moshe Khanim wishing you a healthy and a meaningful day.